This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And it has been a week in which the U.S. death toll from coronavirus surpassing 200,000 as the campaigns look for new ways to reach voters during this pandemic. Meanwhile, the stage now set for a bitter Supreme Court confirmation fight. It is a political battle that will shape the rest of this election cycle. And it all comes with the Trump campaign filing a number of lawsuits trying to stop several states with mail-in ballots. Just ahead, a conversation with the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. But first, the president this past week was asked whether he would accept the November election results and if defeated, would commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election. There has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. And, and But people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. The second question is, will you... Those remarks from the White House. And that development comes as the campaign gets personal, including this new Trump ad. Has Joe Biden ever used a teleprompter during local interviews or to answer Q&A with support? What will your administration do to help them give them that chance? Move it up here. You know, there used to be a basic part of this. Joe Biden possibly, you know, reading his responses from a teleprompter. Social distancing and wearing masks, which I never do when I walk outside of this house. I never fail to do. Now, one day, on day one... Has Joe Biden ever used a teleprompter during local interviews or to answer Q&A? It's trying to distract the American people. Can you say yes or no, Brett? Yes or no? You can't answer the question. You know, the rapidly rising... uh, um, uh, ...in with... uh, ...with, uh, I don't know... Meanwhile, the Biden campaign going all in on the president's rhetoric. This election will decide whether we save the American dream. We must never allow mob rule. 17-year-old being held on suspicion of first-degree intentional homicide. Free reign to violent anarchists and criminals. The El Paso shooting was the deadliest attack at the hands of a white supremacist in the U.S. in 50 years. We must always have law and order. Tear gas was used to remove peaceful protesters from Lafayette Park. A St. Louis couple brandishing firearms against protesters. The greatest economy in history. The U.S. lost more than 20 million jobs just in the month of April, making it the worst job. Jobs report on record. We will crush the virus. Total cases in the U.S. now top 5.8 million. The virus has killed more than 179,000. No one will be safe in Biden's America. Just some of the ads in campaign 2020. Ahead on the weekly, 
Our conversation with the RNC chair recorded on Thursday. Joining us from Washington at the Republican National Committee headquarters is Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the RNC. And I want to begin with the ground game issue because that's a key part of your job to make sure that voters get to the polls either in early voting or on Election Day. So with coronavirus in key states like Michigan, where you're from, how are you dealing with that? Well, initially we went virtual as states were shutting down, as we were coming up with protocols, making sure that PPE was available. And now we've switched back to a fully uh, uh, fully enforced ground game. We're knocking doors in, in all the battleground states. We had the infrastructure in place already, and now we're knocking about a million doors a week. Are you worried about COVID-19? Are you taking precautions? We're taking the safety and health precautions that are necessary. Uh, you know, we went completely virtual at first uh, so that we made sure that there was PPE available, that all the uh, procedures were being put in place. And now we've gone uh, to this full ground game and we feel really good about it. We obviously are cognizant of the homeowners and making sure we're putting their safety first. But uh, so far, there's been no issues. Let me ask you about some news by the president when he was asked about election night. He said, quote, we're going to see what happens. From your standpoint as the RNC chair, what does that mean? Well, of course, the president is going to accept the results of the election. But I think the president is uh, concerned, as am I, about many of the laws across this country being changed by Democrats that are undermining uh, the ability to get results, allowing ballots to be counted in some cases up to 14 days past Election Day. And I think these are real concerns uh, that we have. This is why we're engaged in many, many lawsuits a- across the country. I don't understand why Democrats are systematically in such an uncertain time with our country so divided, going state by state by state and trying to undermine the integrity of this election and changing laws, especially when Dr. Fauci has said it's safe to vote in uh, in person. When you saw in Michigan, they had a million people vote in their primary and there was no uptick in coronavirus. Yet across the country, Democrats are undermining many of the processes that have been vetted and tried and true and I think it will insert chaos into election night. But for those who prefer to mail in their ballot, do you have a problem with that? You know, it's a real difference between somebody proactively asking for an absentee ballot, which every state has an absentee process. That's part of the verification, asking for a ballot versus a state shifting their procedure to all mail-in, mandating mail-in ballots. And, and sending them to voter rolls that have not been vetted, that haven't been checked to see if people have moved away or passed away. And those are concerns we have, especially in states that don't have the infrastructure to handle that influx of mail-in voting. So those are concerns we've seen in the primaries play out in state in New Jersey, where they now have to redo an election. In New York, where it took six weeks to get results. Uh, these are precursors to what we think is going to happen on Election Day, as many of these states are changing election laws on the fly without the infrastructure uh, to handle these significant, significant changes. So to that point, as you know, the president is calling this a democratic scheme and corruption. So where is the corruption? Where where is this happening specifically? I think it's very concerning to see states like Nevada say, not only are we going to expand ballot harvesting, but we're going to mail not just absentee request forms, but live ballots. We saw a lot of problems in the primary where ballots were literally littering 
apartment building floors or garbage cans. Uh, that leaves uncertainty. And every voter should have certainty in the election process. And Democrats systematically are suing to get rid of things like signature verification, voter ID. Uh, they want to expand ballot harvesting, which I don't know how that would be considered safe during coronavirus. If Democrats are saying voting in person isn't safe, why would going door to door and collecting ballots be any safer? So these are things we've seen across the country. States like New Jersey and Montana have pretty much eliminated in-person voting. Uh, the president's right to say Democrats are inserting havoc and chaos into this election cycle. And as you know, we've been hearing that this potentially could be the most litigated election in American history. So what are you preparing for and how is the RNC getting ready for those court challenges if they happen? Well, we've been in many court cases across the country, winning some. Some of them have been codified. So you have uh, dark money paying Democrats to go sue a state. And then the Democrat legislature and governor says, oh, that's what you want us to do. We'll change the law. Uh, and they're doing that as close to 90 days out from an election. So it's much harder to sue when it's codified into law. I think voters should be very alarmed by this. So we're the RNC suing where we can. We're creating a great election day operations team. We will have lawyers ready and prepared on election day. And I think this also shows why it's so, so vital that we have that ninth seat filled on the Supreme Court, because there are going to be, I believe, many, many court cases uh, after election day. But as you know, that was a very different argument four years ago when it was a 4-4 court by members of your own party. Well, it was a different argument because of the Scalia vacancy and you had a different majority in the Senate with a Republican majority and a Democrat in the executive branch. The voters made a choice. They knew there was a Supreme Court vacancy. They chose Republicans at the executive level and to control the Senate. They wanted Republicans to fill that Supreme Court vacancy. And just because we're 40 days out from an election doesn't mean you stop governing. And I can't think of a time where it's more pivotal that we have that, that critical uh, ninth vote so we don't get into a tie with an election that's going to be as litigated as this one is. But do you understand the argument for those who say uh, there is hypocrisy? Because we heard what Senator Graham said. We heard what Senator McConnell said four years ago and Senator Graham two years ago. And now, of course, as you point out, it's a different situation with the Republicans in control of the Senate. But do you see their argument? They've been really clear about that from the very beginning. Mitch McConnell has said if you have a legislative branch with, it, controlled by a different party in the Senate and the executive uh, by a Democrat, we should wait. Uh, but when both are from the same party and voters made that decision, we need to follow the will of the voters in the Constitution. We need that third branch of government fully staffed. Joe Biden has said that himself, that that third branch of government should be fully staffed. I think it's more concerning to see Democrats saying, well, if we don't get what we want and you do what's constitutionally uh, mandated for you to do to fill that Supreme Court vacancy to the president, that we're going to impeach you, that we're going to stack the Supreme Court. I think Joe Biden needs to come out and talk about where he stands on that issue. It's frightening to see Democrats say, if we don't get what we want when we're not in power, we're going to change the rules and change the way this country has been governed. With the understanding that it is a decision up to the Supreme Court justice, but if, as we saw 20 years ago with Bush v. Gore, that the outcome of the election would be dependent on the U.S. Supreme Court, do you think a justice appointed by President Trump should recuse himself or herself? Oh, I'm not going to get into that. That's going to be up to the Senate and the president and, and, and that justice. I think it's really critical, though, that we have 
that that ninth justice. I, I, I think it's something that's going to be critical. I expect that they will follow the law, that they will look at the facts um, and be able to to adjudicate that way. What are you expecting election night? What are you thinking about a month out? Well, I'm obviously uh, looking at my ground game right now. We're trying to get every voter out. I was on the ground in Ohio and Kentucky and Michigan recently. The energy is very, very strong. But we're going we're gonna to keep working until Election Day. We want to make sure that we're making the case. President Trump deserves four more years. He's leading us in the greatest American comeback coming out of this pandemic. He's the right person to rebuild our economy because he's done it before. Joe Biden's been in Washington for 47 years, never started a business, never held a job outside of Washington, and says he's going to raise taxes on 82% of American families. Those are the messages we want to get out. And this army of 2.2 million volunteers that we've trained, the 2,000 staff we have on the ground, is going to be our mechanism to talk to voters one-on-one to make sure we're getting them out and voting Republican on Election Day. The debates begin on Tuesday. How is the president preparing? Well, the president is is always talking to the press. He's out doing events every night. And, of course, he's going to do his own uh, preparation. Uh, But, again, this isn't a president who's been avoiding reporters day after day and and not doing public events. This is a president who's been more accessible than any other president on on the lawn of the White House, always taking questions with his news briefings. So I think he'll be ready uh, for this debate. Does the Supreme Court vacancy mobilize Republican voters? Does it help for those who might be on the fence? I may like uh, the president's policies. I don't like his personality. You know, in 2016, there definitely were voters in, in Michigan when I was chair that were motivated by the Supreme Court vacancy. They wanted Republicans and they wanted a Republican president just based on that. And I think that there will be those voters this cycle as well. I will say the energy we've seen has been unprecedented. I actually feel like there's more energy on the ground than we had in 2016 as I'm traveling the country and with the volunteer signups and all the things that I'm seeing on the ground. So uh, I don't know if it takes much more to motivate them, but uh, certainly this may help with some of those voters who care so much about the Supreme Court and the generational implications that that vacancy will have. Chairwoman McDaniel, let's turn our attention to the U.S. Senate because, as you know, uh, Republicans are defending more seats this cycle than Democrats. What states concern you the most? What races are you most worried about? Yeah, we have pretty much the opposite of what we had in 2018. So we've got a lot of Republican seats that that we want to make sure we hold. Uh, Cory Gardner, we know, is a battleground see Martha McSally, Susan Collins. I think those are three that everybody acknowledges. Uh, Tom Tillis, uh, obviously Joni Ernst. So there's a lot. And then we've got pickup opportunities in in Alabama with uh, Tuberville. John James is a a breakout candidate in Michigan doing incredibly well against Gary Peters. So we're not just trying to hold our seats. We're actually looking to pick up seats as well. But what worries you the most of those races? What are you most concerned oh, about? Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> I don't want to make our candidates think uh, I'm worried about their race. I, I feel good about what we're doing in all of these states. I feel good about the ground game. Uh, but certainly some of these are going to be neck and neck until Election Day. And we've been looking at the numbers coming from the president's reelection campaign. Do you have financially what the party needs? Does the president have what he needs in terms of money for advertising and the final push? We absolutely have the resources we need to get through this campaign. The difference with the RNC is is we've raised record money and we have raised more than the DNC since the beginning of 2019. We've been investing in a ground game. And that's why you're seeing stories like 
Republicans are out registering Democrats in states like Florida and Pennsylvania and North Carolina because having that ground game early and understanding you can't pop up a ground game a week before an election. You can't train two million volunteers on the fly. Uh, having people be able to knock and be trained to, in their to to talk to their neighbors in their own neighborhood is so impactful. And we've been building that for years. So I feel very good about where we are on the infrastructure side of things. And obviously, the campaign will have the resources it needs to get the commercials up and reelect the president. And I'm curious. You mentioned commercials as somebody who who studies and understands politics. From your standpoint in a presidential election, is there a point of diminishing returns when it comes to advertising versus the ground game or other efforts to mobilize voters? I think it's kind of the whole picture, the whole ecosystem is really impactful in turning out a voter. There absolutely are diminishing returns as TV gets saturated and people tune out unless that commercial is so unique that it breaks out. Uh, you have to pay more to get enough views for it to stick in a voter's head. Um, but then you've got to use digital, mail. Uh, door knocking is very impactful, especially when it's neighbor to neighbor. It's just common sense. If you're knocking your friend's door and you say, hey, we live down the street. Our kids go to school together. Can I talk to you about this election? We find that that's the most important tool. And then live phones uh, to make sure those absentee ballots and and those votes come in or those early votes. So I think it's the whole ecosystem needs to be running at full strength. And we certainly have that heading into 2020. And we're seeing a lot of ads from the Lincoln Project, including your predecessor, Michael Steele, the former chair of the RNC, and some of those ads taking aim at Senator Lindsey Graham. What's your reaction? Yeah, it's, it's disappointing. I, I, I don't understand how you could hold Republican ideals like cutting taxes, cutting reg regulation, rule of law justices, energy independence, better trade deals, strengthening our military and taking care of our veterans, all these things that President Trump has done, and then say, I'm abandoning the Republican Party and no longer want those things as Democrats are espousing a path towards socialism, more government control, more taxes, more regulation, uh, taking away private health care. The list goes on and on. So I don't understand it. I think it's distressing. Uh, but certainly we are going to do everything we can to make sure that we have victories for not just the president keeping the Senate and taking back the House. But does that divide the GOP, that effort? No, I think that group is smaller and smaller. They're just more vocal and they get more attention uh, because uh, they're never Trumpers. But I know firsthand that people who were concerned about the president in 2016 didn't know, is he really going to put rule of law justices on the Supreme Court? Is he really a Republican? They have come around and his support among the Republican Party is, is record high. And that's evidenced by the enthusiasm, not just through the volunteers we're seeing, but organic things like the Trump boat parades and the car parades and conversations everybody's having across the country where people say, you know, he really did deliver and he's done the things that he's promised. And I think Republicans especially recognize he has been such a strong president for Republican ideals and pushing them forward. You are, of course, the former chair of the Michigan Republican Party. So as you look at your home state and you look at the returns coming out on November the 3rd, what part of the state is going to be a real bellwether for you and for the president? Uh, Macomb County it will be key. Uh, Macomb County is the county that everybody kind of got wrong in, in 2016 uh, on, the, on the media side of things. And I think the national polls were wrong. Locally, we knew something was happening in Macomb County. Uh, that is a bellwether uh, county that went for Reagan, had, had been Democrat for decades, and then went for Trump. Also, Oakland County, we need to perform well there. And Wayne County, the most populous areas. But 
the whole state is is really um, mobilized right now. The energy on the ground, I was there this week, but those will be the counties that I'll be looking at on election day there. And as you well know, we are a very divided country. So regardless of what happens on election day, do you envision any role that you and your counterpart at the DNC would play in trying to heal whatever wounds are left after the results come in in November? You know, I, I always want to see our country more united. I think that as a mom, as um, as somebody who has friends and family on, on both sides of the aisle politically, we don't want to see this division. I, I feel like it's been unfortunate to see Democrats refuse to accept the election of Donald Trump, uh, boycotting the inauguration, hashtag not my president. Uh, the things that, that this president has had to deal with has not been good for our country. So hopefully, no matter what, we can come together because we do live in the greatest country on earth. And I want to see it continue so that that American dream is available for my kids. And we need to do that working together. But when you talk about those divisions, does the president with his tweets and often his tone bear any responsibility? I've never seen a president have to deal with what this president has dealt with. And, you know, you can talk about tweets all you want, fine. But when you see before he was even elected that there were potential uh, spies embedded in his campaign, that there were FISA warrants against people in his campaign, that the Obama administration didn't just take candidate Trump aside and say, hey, we're worried about these foreign actors. Will you work with us? That's so concerning to me. That would have solved so many problems. And then to see him elected and see Democrats never work with this president. I've never seen anything like it. You talk about the peaceful transfer of power. We didn't have that with this election. So hopefully uh, we can get rid of the rhetoric. Let's stop dividing the country. Uh, I I know we're going to see more of that through the Supreme Court nomination. What they did to Justice Kavanaugh was the was one of the saddest times in our political history to see the character assassination of him. Uh, And we hope that we don't see that with this next nominee. So what's your message to Democrats and what should Democrats tell Republicans in terms of the deep divisions that we have in this country (laughs) on Capitol Hill and on Main Street? I don't think they're listening to me right now. Um, But I will give you this, just a little anecdote. I don't know how much time you have, but my, my kid's school had a website that went up outing Trump supporters to harass them and attack them. And my kids, of course, were the first ones put on that site. And a a really strong Democrat Biden supporter called my daughter that night and said, you know what, this is wrong. This isn't what we should do to people in this country. Uh, You deserve to have your opinion and be respected. And they took the site down together. Uh, I wish we did that more as adults. Uh, We should be able to have differences of opinion and not be vitriolic and hateful and divisive. And hopefully we can get to a more civil discourse in the future. Let's spend our remaining minutes talking about you. How, what's been the biggest learning curve in terms of your role as the RNC chair over the last uh, three and a half, almost four years? I think initially I wasn't a known person. Uh, fundraising was, of course, something I was incredibly concerned about because I wasn't a national figure. So traveling the country, talking to investors, explaining why it was so important to invest in the RNC was probably the biggest hurdle because I can't do anything if we don't have money. There's no ground game. There's no voter reg. Uh, So I think that was a big learning curve. And and obviously being in Washington and understanding this city is a little bit different too, but I've enjoyed every step of the way. And I've been lucky to have a president who's been so supportive of the party and of me in this role, which has made any challenge I face much easier. Do you envision that you would stay on as chair after the election? 
Oh, that, that I can't answer that question. I just want to win the election and, and, and get a great vacation no matter what after because I need to see my husband and my kids. Any interest in running for political office? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to answer that question. Right now, I not think, I, honestly, I'm not even thinking about that. Like, that's not, that's not a, a, a pivot. I just am not even thinking about that right now. Your maiden name is Romney, and I'm curious, what were the political discussions like growing up? Yeah, my, my middle name is Romney. My maiden name became my middle name. It, it remains my middle name. Uh, you know, we had a lot of discussions around the Sunday dinner table. My grandfather was the former gover governor of Michigan. He lived right next door. I didn't know that it was unusual to have political discussions, and sometimes they were heated in our family. But uh, my grandfather always talked to us about the importance of getting involved and never taking this country for granted. And um, I just love this country, and I, I love getting involved. And I did it at a grassroots level. And ended up running the Republican National Committee. And why? Why did you decide to become chair of the uh, Republican Committee and also the chair of the Michigan Republican Party? You know, I started as a precinct delegate, uh, local politics. I was really engaged in that and served on my district committee, state committee, state committee woman, national committee woman. Uh, and part of my passion for becoming Michigan chair was I felt like our state had been ignored had become a flyover state for presidential candidates for far too long. And then this candidate came along, came Donald Trump, and I said, you can win Michigan. And he said, you know, I'm going to believe this nice mom from Michigan. And, and he kept coming back, and we won, and we broke history, and then was offered the role to take over the RNC. And it's been a great challenge. Uh, it has not just been leaning in. It's been diving in headfirst. Uh, but I enjoy every minute of it. Final question. What has been your biggest change or contribution to the RNC in the last uh, nearly four years? I think there's two things that uh, will be part of my legacy, which will be the creation of WinRed, which is a small dollar fundraising platform that will be competitive with ActBlue. The Democrats have had that for 15 years. We did not have that. To have that signed uh, and put together through the NRSC, the NRCC, the White House, the RNC, the first of its kind I think is going to be instrumental for candidates long term. And then the prospecting we did early on to expand our email list. It was a huge uh, financial outlay for us, but it's allowed us to reach voters and fundraise at a small dollar level like we never have before and growing that from 11 million to over 30 million. Uh, I think those will be the two biggest assets uh, that I'll be leaving behind. And obviously it was part of a whole team effort here at the RNC. Ronna McDaniel is the chair of the Republican National Committee. Joining us from the RNC headquarters here in Washington, we thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. By the way, if you are interested, this interview can also be viewed at cspan.org. And be sure to check out all of our podcasts available on our website. Follow us at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington for The Weekly. Thank you for listening. <laughs>